0: Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Friday, June 3rd, 2022. I'm John Hortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, Executive Editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe.
1: Hi, John.
0: Associate Editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Christine Rosen is on leave. Joining us today, tech commentary columnist, veteran American journalist, uh, Jim Meggs. Jim, thanks for joining us as always. Great to be back. Uh, so we are uh we got to start with the president's uh i guess it wasn't they he spoke about guns they didn't call it a presidential address to the nation even though and it was at a weird time seven thirty. maybe not that weird if you're 79 years old uh need to get to bed but uh, um and uh it was a uh emotionally dr- driven speech i mean the 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 effort was to wring every last piece of emotion out of the um, the horrible uh, murders in Uvalde, and to talk about the monstrousness of school shootings and mass shootings, and and to and to express moral outrage at the fact that we now are somehow either taking these things for granted and we need to stop. And the constant refrain in the speech was the word enough. He kept saying enough, 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 enough. Um, And I was struck by one passage I want to read to you uh, because I think it, it, it both represents the most commonsensical objection to, to the, uh, to those who say that nothing, nothing need to be done or should be done or constitutionally can be done. Uh, and it also represents why, uh, the constitutional argument is so powerful. Okay. So this is just the passage. Biden says enough, enough. We should limit how many rounds a weapon can hold. Why in God's name? Should an ordinary citizen be able to purchase an assault weapon that holds 30 round magazines that let mass shooters fire hundreds of bullets in a matter of minutes? Okay, so if we unpack this a little bit, he's saying, Who needs these bullets? Why do you need these bullets? Why should a mass shooter be able to buy them? Why should anybody be able to buy them? Why, but listen to what he says. Why in God's name should an ordinary citizen be able to purchase? Blah, 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 blah. Well, here we have the crux. I keep doing this in this giant way, but you know, it's like here we have the crux of the difference between a conservative and a liberal. A conservative's view is that um, an ordinary citizen should have the right to do everything and anything that is not proscribed by law should have the right maybe you shouldn't do it maybe it's immoral but that but that liberty means that the that you you chip away at people's liberty hesitatingly and with and with real care or with a real sense of what is that because that because we operate from the basis that you are free and that limitations on freedom therefore are limitations on your God-given rights, or could be limitations on your God-given rights, and therefore you have to tread carefully. Whereas liberals want to look at this and say, "Why should anybody need this?
1: No, nobody needs this, so they shouldn't have it." Just to add to what you're saying, John, I think another way of saying it is that there's a conservative idea is that when it comes to rights, you don't have to demonstrate need.
0: Oh, that's a very good way of putting it. Or as, or as, or as uh, you know, King. King Lear's monstrous daughter, uh, Goneril, says to Lear, "You know, what do you need all these people in your in your entourage for? What need have you of a hundred men, or fifty men, or twenty-five men?" And Lear says, "Reason not the need. Precisely. I was king. I was king. Reason not the need. That is not the way you look at it." Now, Lear is being irrational, but but it is this interesting. Question and Jim, you you sort of identify in many ways as a as a libertarian. So uh, I don't know if you're a gun owner. I'm not a gun owner. Uh, I can't imagine why I would need to own you know magazines with hundreds of bullets. But w- where do you stand listening to this rhetoric?
2: Yeah, I'm not a gun owner, uh, but I I am sympathetic to the not just the libertarian, just the constitutional argument that that the Second Amendment means what it says and that the purpose of owning firearms isn't just, you know, Biden always likes to to say, well, you know, you don't need this for hunting. Well it's not just about hunting. That's if it was about hunting, it wouldn't be the second amendment in our constitution. So I I think that the the notion that that we need to justify people's right on firearms is is wrongheaded. That said, I I just recorded a podcast with a public health expert at University of Michigan, who has been studying this for a long time and has a lot of ideas about how we can approach gun violence as a public health uh, issue. Now, this is something a lot of conservatives have have fought against or been offended by, if the CDC is is funding this kind of research. Uh, But But the notion that a lot of people are getting killed by guns and that we can study the ways that they're getting killed and make some tweaks around the edges to improve that, I think is, is a fair one. And and he analogizes it to all the work we've done to make cars safer, you know, with airbags and better rules and studying how accidents happen and redesigning roads to make accidents less common and improving driver education and all these things. Now, driving is not a constitutional right but there are there are a lot of things they can do right down to just educating people about better gun storage in their homes that can uh, that can solve the problem what he stresses is, is no one ever approaches problems saying well should we take away everyone's cars <laughs> you know or they, they approach it as is how do we make this this item that 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 every so many people own and use safer and I think that's a conversation that could be bipartisan and it could be had. But in order to have that conversation, you have to get over the, uh, the, the political utility of using the issue to beat up on the other side. And that's what I really heard Biden's speech doing a lot of. I think the anguish is, is legitimate. I think we all share it. But he quickly pivoted to saying, see, it's all you guys because you don't care. You don't care like I care. If we could get past that and focus on some concrete and pretty they, honestly, they'd be very small ball solutions. But, but there are plenty of things that could be discussed that would improve the situation. Well,
0: you know, one of I think the most telling fact about what happened in Texas is this, which is that <clears throat> the shooter in Uvalde uh, bought these. Uh, You know, air 15s uh, upon his 18th birthday, but would not have been able to buy handguns uh, because uh, you were not allowed to buy a handgun in Texas until you're 21. And that's Texas. So the idea that, you know, limiting gun ownership by age um, is uh, prima facie unconstitutional, though, as Noah pointed out yesterday, there is uh, Ninth Circuit. Uh, Ninth Circuit being the most famously liberal uh, appellate court in the country, that the Ninth Circuit has raised questions about about the legitimacy of of those age restrictions given the Second Amendment, um, <clears throat> but they they do exist. They have existed. There are limitations on gun ownership, and the question, you know, um, as Christine said on her last podcast, we don't let babies buy guns, so um, we're in an interesting place here and. Uh, it is very clear that for the first time really in decades, there is there are serious conversations going on about small ball solutions, as as you say, Jim, uh, between uh, Richard Blumenthal and Lindsey Graham, between Chris Murphy and Pat Toomey and Manchin. And all that is necessary is for uh, enough Republicans to vote for for cloture 60 republicans to vote for cloture they can still vote against the bill but they can allow it to come to the floor and uh it appears at the moment that mitch mcconnell might be favorably disposed to allowing a vote anyway it's it's all it's all interesting because of course biden goes to look i'd like to ban all assault rifles but uh, you know, no, this he said, I'd like to ban all assault rifles, and he also says this isn't about taking away anyone's rights. It's about protecting children. It's about protecting families. It's about protecting whole communities. Um, but of course, it is about taking away rights. Uh, maybe not constitutional rights, as they are limiting rights or something like that. It is, and we do limit rights. We you can't yell, can't shop fire in a Don't crowded say it.
3: theater. Don't say it. and. Don't invoke Oliver Wendell Holmes
0: for any particular reason. (laughs) Certainly not the Espionage Act. Okay, all I'm saying is, you know, free speech is not absolute. None of none of our constitutional rights is absolute. You know, you do not have a right to own child porn, right? I mean, there are right there are you know you don't have a right to produce child porn. You don't have a right to so. There are limitations on rights that are are, uh, that are not deemed absolute, and so. This, this could well be one of them, but you know, if Biden really wanted to contribute to the conversation in a way that moved that forward, he would have been more conciliatory. He wouldn't have said in the course of this speech, I'm just looking for the language that uh, uh, Jim evoked earlier. He said, you know, the House is doing great. The House has already passed key measures. The House, of course, being in democratic hands. This time... We have to take time to do something. And this time, it's time for the Senate to do something. But as we know, in order to get anything done in the Senate, we need a minimum of 10 Republican senators. I support the bipartisan efforts that include a small group of Democrats and Republican senators trying to find a way. But my God, the fact that the majority of the Senate Republicans don't want any of these proposals even to be debated or come up for a vote, I find unconscionable. Now, if your interest was in that small group of people getting to 60 or, you know, getting to an agreement that could get a vote for cloture and then pass by 52 votes or something in the in the Senate, um, you wouldn't be making a you wouldn't be provoking a ideological confront a partisan confrontation on this. And maybe you wouldn't know the what speech. the heck
3: you're talking about. Part of the problem that gun control advocates have is that they are very certain of things that are not true. And a lot of that showed up in Joe Biden's speech last night. Among them, a few years I'm quoting, a few years ago, the family of the inventor of the AR-15 said he would be horrified to know that that his design was being used to slaughter children and other innocent lives instead of being used as a military weapon on the battlefield as it was designed. That is what it was designed for. That is not what the Armalite rifle was designed for. If you carry an AR-15 on the battlefield, you're going to get smoked. It's not a weapon of war. It is a weapon of utility for private hands. Likewise, um, we should have a response. That we should have the ability to uh, sue gun manufacturers, as we sue every other. We can sue every other company for liability. You can't sue any other company for misuse of your product. You can sue a car maker if the car blows up. You can't sue a car maker if somebody drives into a crowd. That's a misuse of the product, and we have legal liability as a result to protect companies from frivolous lawsuits when people misuse their products like this. Gun people know this. I'm not one of them, but they know all this. They've internalized all this. They can talk to you off script about all this. Gun control advocates
0: cannot. So, right. So uh, this is an important point that Biden, Biden says. Look, you know, where would we be if we couldn't have, you know, if the tobacco companies hadn't been liable for tobacco. Um, I mean, come on now. The, the level of, of tobacco use in the United States had already dropped by something like 40% before it became, before a court said that a tobacco company could be held liable for the diseases of, the, of, of people who... You know who smoked tobacco, and the argument that they could not be held liable was that people smoked as adults and they made a choice. And there was all this evidence, you know, for thirty years. There's been was evidence around saying that you know cigarette use caused you know caused or was implicated in in cancer, and so they were doing so with a knowledge of the of the danger that they were that they were potentially. Uh, putting themselves in by doing so and then a, a court said no no it's okay we' you, you can su- you, you you can sue them and they can be they can be held liable but public the public had already turned on smoking to a great extent I mean you know I think something like half of the American people smoked in 1960 and by 19 I don't know 85 or 86 it had dropped to 30 some odd percent and then it's now down to 20 so, that's also a disingenuous argument that, you know, we need to do is follow the tobacco history. Like, everything tells us that gun ownership has become, I mean, it's weird because there's a lot more guns. I don't know that there are fewer gun owners uh, or, the, you know, there there are more gun owners than there used to be. I mean, I think something like 36% of households have a, have a weapon in them uh, when people lived um, when people lived, you know, more rurally, uh, before, you know, before the great urbanization and suburbanization, that number might've been considerably higher. I I don't know. I mean, maybe it was too expensive to own a rifle, but I assume almost everybody, you know, living in a rural setting probably owned a rifle for 10,000 different reasons. Um, So I don't know. I mean, there is the simple fact of the matter that that there are very significant state by state regulations on the use of handguns and that rifles were put in a separate category and that that's something I'm guessing could get a hard look at.
1: I just want to just comment on the speech broadly. Um, I think we're we're taking it in a sense more seriously than it deserved because to me this was very transparently a sort of last minute effort which is why it wasn't really billed as a as a presidential speech to to end a bad week of bad headlines about about you know administ- administration that's in a sort of frustrated state of chaos um, to try to to try to slide in this strong message uh that would resonate with the american people before, before the end of the week and and so he didn't actually say anything new. He didn't. Biden didn't say anything he hasn't said before on this topic. You know, and it, 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 aside from this sort of emotional pitch to enough, Jim.
2: Yeah, I'm really struck with the lack of self awareness in this whole speech. He, he said, "We can't fail the American people again." You know, he loves this sense of just. Uh, Of moral outrage and conveying his his passion for this common sense thing that just obviously has to be done. Well, you were a senator for four hundred and seventy five years, you know, very influential one. You were vice president for eight years. Your party had, you know, early in the presidency, commanding control over the levels of power. So why didn't you fix it? If these things are so easy to do, why didn't you do them? Why, why wasn't this the first thing you did when you came into office? Instead of shutting down pipelines on your first couple of days in the White House, why didn't you do this? Uh, if it's so obvious, so easy, so straightforward, so morally compelling that there is the answers are simple and direct and, and everyone should agree, then then you're in charge. Why didn't you fix it?
0: Well, we should talk about another element in the speech that is, you know, both important and 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 discussed very cavalierly, right? Which is that he says um, that there's a mental health crisis in the United States, right? We have, and and obviously, uh, these last two cases, not the—not 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 the one in California at the church, but uh, Buffalo and Uvalde, um, and of course Parkland involved. Uh, uh, young males under the age of 21 um, but he says look there's a mental health crisis in the United States you mental we have to do something about it that's why mental health is the heart of my unity agenda that I laid out in the state and union address this year um, do you remember that there was a unity agenda I do remember a unity agenda I don't remember I don't the- remember mental health being a part of it, it might well, it was, it, a cent- might been, well but it was the second one excuse it was the heart it's the heart of Frankly. the unity agenda sure. that I already forgot existed. And, you know, uh, the say union wasn't that long ago, right? It was um, like three months ago. Anyway, um, here's what he says. We must provide more school counselors, more school nurses, more mental health services for students and for teachers, more people volunteering as mentors to help young people succeed, more privacy protection and resources to keep safe kids safe. From the uh, harms of social media, this unity agenda won't fully heal the wounded souls, but it will help. It matters. Are you kidding me? More mental health services for teachers? How is that going to, what what the hell are you talking about? More people volunteering as mentors? That's to help a mental health crisis in which kids, in which you're talking about, you are alighting things here, fascinatingly, right? There's a fascinating elision going on here, which is you have psychopaths who are, you know, who have shot up schools. And then you have a youth mental health crisis in which kids are riven with depression, anxiety, um, and inability to, you know, sort of produce, perform. They're they're regressed in age and all of that. And you're somehow going to dovetail that, which is a problem uh, of paralysis, of emotional paralysis, a lot of it due to COVID. And with active evil, That is in an entirely different category, you know. Like, let's get more school counselors. I know because school counselors are just fantastic, right? I know we're about to get letters from school counselors. Like, that's great. Let's get more school counselors and mentors. We'll get mentors because you know, if if only the Uvalde shooter had had a mentor when he was eleven, he wouldn't have been killing animals. I mean, you know, there is a there is a contemptible kind of you know, just like throw crap at the wall to see what sticks quality to this, which is I'm just going to shovel everything in and see what I can convince people. There is a mental, there is a youth mental health crisis in the United States. It is not implicated in what happened in Uvalde and in um, and in uh, Buffalo because you know, does that mean that in 2017, when Parkland happened, in 2012, when Sandy Hook happened, in 1999, when Columbine happened, that all of these things have the same root in a kind of uh, generation-wide or two-generation-wide youth mental health crisis? Ross
1: Douthat had an interesting proposal, I thought, this week that I, that I didn't see talked about much uh, in a column. The uh, He floated the idea. And I just want to know what you guys think about it, um, that instead of trying to limit the age at which uh, people could, could purchase certain guns, that you, you come up with an age limit, I don't know, at least 25, 23, whatever it was. And under, if you want to get uh, a particular type of gun under that age, uh, you, have, you face a more rigorous type of uh, background check one that's sort of probing on, on mental health.
0: Look, it's an interesting, de- unless you so. believe that background checks themselves are unconstitutional, I don't see any no, reason why you couldn't have different laws. I don't think that's true. Check. The
3: objection is that this isn't the province of the federal government. These are state level initiatives, right? But let's that's say they're the state objection level to, federal, to a federal f- uh, flag law or what have you and Red closing flag. background, yeah. you know, the background check, um, loopholes which is gun shows and private sales doesn't do anything to address gun violence it wouldn't do anything to these mass shooters and conspicuously the vast majority of gun violence that's that occurs in this country would not be flagged by red flag laws
0: hey can we talk about that for a minute
3: areas and have a lot to do with gang violence
0: yeah can i talk can can we talk about that um just for a minute and i
3: to just which is just to say not that red flag laws have no value. I think they do. I think they would interdict the kind of mass high body count events that we talk about here that capture the nation's attention. But that's not
0: the vast majority of gun violence in this country. Do you know how many shootings there have been in Chicago? Is June 3rd this year. June 3rd. So we're, you know, we're not even fully halfway through the year. 1184 shootings in Chicago. Just to give you a sense of the size of that, New York has had 296. New York is, of course, twice the size of Chicago. New York is in the middle of a crime spike. I mean, the, the numbers over, you know, over the last two years are horrifying. But so he goes through this whole speech about enough, enough, and blah, 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 blah. blah, blah. And uh, 1,200 people have been shot in Chicago. That, that, that is not mentioned in this speech about gun violence. Not mentioned. So, what does that tell you? Those that is not happening. Those people aren't being shot with AR-15s. They're being shot by hit with handguns, legal handguns, probably, and I mean the, the overwhelming majority of cases. So essentially, what we're talking about now are are acts of uh, horrifying, barbaric madness. Um they are by definition criminal, right? Because they're illegal and they involve horrifying violations of criminal statutes, but they're not being perpetrated by criminals, people who are professional criminals or people who, whose life is a life of crime, right? The one in Uvalde, you know, hasn't been arrested before, as far as we can tell. And the, the guy in Buffalo, nothing. Um, They, they did, popping on screens for things that were said and done, you know, in school and on sports fields, but not criminal. And so very oddly the president of the United States talking about this does not talk about the epidemic of gun violence in cities. And I leave it to you to speculate as to why that, that might be, could that be that there's a, been this incredible spike in shootings at a time when progressive politicians are increasingly talking about how we shouldn't be prosecuting criminals, we should be letting people out without bail, we should be, you know, know, we should be reducing sentences, we should be sealing felony records after seven years so that no employer could actually know that somebody they hired might have been in prison for 10 years for shooting somebody. That kind of thing. You think that general atmosphere since like 2018 2019 hasn't contributed to this epidemic of gun violence that the president might himself have taught because that's the epidemic of gun we don't actually have an epidemic of mass shootings that's a that's a complete myth right i mean the shooting in unless you want to count a mass shooting as something where one person shoots more than one person that then counts as a mass shooting. i'll tell you where it did show up in joe biden's speech
3: Um, where he cited the Centers for Disease Control statistics, which recently now indicate that gun violence has overtaken car accidents as the leading cause of death among children age 0 to 17. That's not mass shooting death. That's death in urban centers and inner cities uh, involving gangs, involving criminals, involving recidivists, People who are sent out on the street for committing gun crime and have no bail, and then immediately go back to committing gun crime—that's uh, where it did show up in the speech, albeit in a way that was, as you say, disingenuous because it avoids the actual subject he was trying to speak about.
0: I mean, obviously, we all know that there is something different about a shooting at a school, a shooting at a church, a shooting at a synagogue. Uh, even though shooting at the supermarket, though, it's a slightly different thing. Um, there's something different. It, it, it terrifies us. It means that, you know, it gives you the sense that nothing nowhere is safe, you know that ra- randomness has taken over our existences and that we need to somehow factor in the possibility of random evil being perpetrated on us. And there's there's no psychologically, there's no defense against that. Either you say to yourself, look, the odds of my, my kid being involved in a school shooting are so in, in, infinitesimal that I'm not going to worry about it. But if you are the type of person who's going to worry about it, it will consume you. It will consume you forever because by, by, by the definition of randomness, you are just as likely to have it happen in your school as at any other school by, by, by the principle, sort of the chaos principle that is introduced by this. And so, you know, there is something different. And the idea that we might want to take measures that are even restrictive to vast numbers of people who won't ever, 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 ever even be anywhere near this or contemplate it or contribute to it, anybody who might want to, you know, own own an assault rifle or own an AR-15 or whatever, that we might want to do that anyway, because the country is in a state of deep unsettlement, you know, deeply unsettled by these and that there's a reason that you restrict it. It's like the 1%, it's like um, uh, Dick Cheney's theory of the 1% uh, solution, that if you have a, if there's a 1% chance that somebody is going to leave a suitcase nuclear bomb in Times Square, it's worth it to create two decades of uh, security theater at airports and things like that. Because the prospect of an event happening is so catastrophic that it's worth the inconvenience to to, to other people, and and that that's partially what's being essentially thought of here um, uh, on the part of of these people. Although of course they just also don't like a lot of them just don't like guns and don't think anybody. Should have a gun, and so you know anything that they can do to prevent, uh, interfere with, or contribute to the difficulty of p- procuring and owning guns is 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 great with them. Um, and uh, Biden is apparently one of those, has been one of those people forever. Um, so I, I, anyway, it's it, it's interesting. Obviously, the speech isn't going to move any needle whatsoever. Whatever happens with these senators is going to happen with these senators. Um, and it, it, and, uh, oh, you know, it's also, let's, let's just spend a couple of minutes on the gun lobby point, you know, cause he's like, why are we still enthralled to the gun lobby? Um, I believe the last number I saw was that in terms of political contributions and the amount of political contributions being, uh, doled out across the United States by lobbying groups, that the NRA is something like 196th. The NRA doesn't give money anymore, barely gives money anymore. The NRA is on the ropes. It doesn't have to, because the issue with gun ownership isn't that there's, a, that there's a lobby that needs to, you know, needs to work on the interests of citizens who have this, you know, have a particular interest in something. 36% of households have a gun in them in the United States. You don't need a lobby. That's like saying there's a man lobby or you know there's a it's, there is no lobby. There is there there are hundreds of millions of people with guns. <laughs> no? I mean, is that a lobby? That's the citizen that's that's that is a free uh, adult citizenry. The
2: the gun lobby claim is is one of many versions of a kind of conspiracy theory. You know, this bad thing wouldn't happen if it wasn't some kind of plot from a small group of powerful people. And if all of us sensible people, who all naturally agree, could just get together, we could we could root out this bad conspiracy and and um, you know and and target it. And I think that is such a temptation. So many different political views, and we see it with this this sense in with gun violence that we you know we who advocate for gun control are are so clearly in the moral right and and we feel so strongly that we also know that anybody that disagrees with us must be kind of uniquely awful and that's sadly what comes out you know it's understandable that we all respond to the evil of these events because they are they're calculated to be evil and 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 vicious uh so, they do hit us in a different way than a couple of, of gangbangers shooting each other on the street corner, sadly, even though that violence has so much more impact. But they do hit us in a different way. And, and it's natural to react. But uh, so sadly, it often gets quickly turned into a kind of a cudgel to say that, you know, everybody that I disagree with is in favor of this, they, they want this. And that is. If you're trying to solve the problem, you're going backwards when you do that.
0: So uh, let's pull back uh, for a minute and uh, let me talk to you about our one of our favorite uh, sponsors, uh, of course, our old friends uh, at X chair, because many of us spend more time every day in our office chair than in our cars and beds. So go invest in the right chair so you can spend your hours with the right level of support and comfort to get the most productivity out of your day. Because the extra will make your time at your desk not only more productive, but, but will enhance your seating in your home and will maybe become the favorite place that you sit either at home or at the office. Not only does extra's patented dynamic variable lumbar or DVL offer the ultimate customized support, but the extra can give you a massage, heat up, Cool you down. And now, thanks to X Chair's new FS360 armrest, you can even adjust your armrest to the perfect position. All these unique X Chair features help the hours at your desk fly by in complete comfort. That's why I love my X Chair. So go to xchaircommentary.com now. That's the letter X, the word chair, commentary.com, or call 1 8444 X Chair for $100 off your order. X Chair has a 30 day guarantee of complete comfort, and you can finance your purchase for as little as $30 a month. X Chair Commentary. And we're also brought to you today, as we are many days, by my dear friend David Bonson of the Bonson Group and his book, There's No Free Lunch, 250 Economic Truths, this necessary primer uh, education tool, instruction manual, daily devotional to uh, the uh, ideas of uh, ordered liberty, economic freedom, human flourishing, and the connection between Uh, the most uh, eternal qualities of mankind and the universe, and the good working order of a free society and a free economy. Uh, 250 economic truths explored with quotes from great thinkers, great theologians, great uh, writers, great economists. Um, You really can't miss with this book. Get it at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, wherever you get your books. That's there's no free lunch, 250 economic truths by David Bonson. That's B-A-H-N-S-E-N 200. And, there's no free lunch, 250 economic truths. Uh okay, where 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 do we go from here? I've already forgotten. Here we had a plan, and now I've forgotten our plan. And you guys job seem numbers? To have forgotten job numbers. We have we have pretty good job numbers. Okay, everything's solved. Biden's political crisis is over. Democrats are gonna hold the house and and advance in the Senate. I mean, the job numbers are pretty much the same as they have been. And can we tell the dirty little secret of jobs numbers? High jobs numbers have an inflationary effect. Right. So, so unfortunately, yeah, go ahead. Just because It's all very
3: confusing because I have friends in finance who listen to what they're told by, you know, the Goldman types and what have you. And they don't see recession on the horizon. And the thing about recession is you don't know you're, you're in a recession until you're almost out of it, at least when it's a, a quick one as we would expect this to be if there is a correction to be made um, because it would come in as a negative growth in this quarter. But they see, you know, tepid growth in Q2, which we won't know until the end of this month. But then we have productivity numbers that came out yesterday and I don't see them indicating anything other than what you would think would suggest a recession is, is on um, because productivity came in at a, a full point lower than what was expected. Uh, wages grew a full point more than what was expected and labor costs increased uh, for at another point. So we're seeing more money chasing after fewer goods. Labor is, is, is a good and it's inflationary obviously. And it's having an effect on productivity. They say, okay, well consumer spending is is sky high. And consumer spending is like two thirds of economic activity and and the GDP number, right. But that consumer spending is chasing after fewer and fewer goods, thus producing less economic activity. So I'm confused about the whole thing. I still I still don't. I'm not an economist. I know a lot of economists in, in this business, and many of them are far more bullish than I am. Um, so I maybe I'll defer to them. But expectations for Q1 was positive growth to the tune of 1.5, and we got 1.5 negative. So they didn't see that. Maybe they don't see this.
0: You're you're actually hearing bullishness from people because I'm not bullishness, hearing huge... but
3: not recessionary. Right. We're gonna I mean, just just skip the event horizon of a recession.
0: You know, it's possible. I don't know. I don't know why anything that's going on in in, in American life on the on, on large scale would lead you into any kind of optimism that we're gonna skirt worse. <laughs> worse news because that has not been the case in the United States for the last, I don't know, umpteen years that, you know, if things can get worse, they, they have been getting worse. Although we haven't talked about this like for a week, week and a half, but I hope everybody is noticing that, uh, despite talk of 72 variants and everything like that, the, um, the Omicron spike uh, that the that uh, it really does now seem like there is a significant decline underway in the number of daily deaths from uh, from COVID after after they it sort of settled in uh, in the mid three hundreds and we're now down to cl- kind of like the middle two hundreds and uh, and and the separation now between the number of test cases. And the number of hospitalizations and deaths is 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 pretty severe. It's worth pointing that out. So in fact, there's good news there. And you there know, is the, yeah.
3: I'm just sorry, I'm interrupting you. But briefly back no, to the jobs number, because um, I wanted to bring this to the table because um, a GOP strategist, Tony Frato, had a pretty good point. Um, jobs growth outpaced expectations. And there's 1.4 million job openings, something like that. Labor participation rate is approximately now where it was pre-pandemic um and so this is we're in the middle of probably the best jobs market in in our living memory you can have whatever you can do whatever you want you can make money now it won't go very far but you can make money doing almost whatever you want people are leaving their jobs they're going to new jobs they're getting back into the workforce presumably because they have to which you know contributes to a form of malaise but nevertheless you can do what you want to do in this country and that's the sort of thing that the 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 Biden administration should be talking up, but they're not. And you don't know why. Why aren't they talking it up? Part because people feel the economy is bad. <laughs> and, and you know, the talk, the talk of the town among Democrats is, well, the public has a perception that the economy is bad. So why aren't you doing something to erase that perception? Talk about the extent to which employment opportunities in this country are absolutely abundant, have, not, have never been more abundant, at least in in many many years perhaps decades
2: i'll tell you why they don't talk about it that much is they don't care that much about most jobs if you look at a lot of policies uh from this administration it's geared towards jobs for the right people the right types of jobs one of the things that they had in the build back better bill there goes my train um, one of the things they had in the Build Back Better bill was a, an effort to dramatically increase the rebates on electric cars because, you know, uh, climate is a crisis. Electric cars are the solution. We want to sell as many electric cars as we can. So we're going to offer you a $500—I mean, $12,500 rebate on any electric car you buy, except if it's made by Tesla. <laughs> the, 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 re, the full rebate would only apply to cars made in unionized American factories. So what looked like an attempt to address what they say is such a crucial issue, climate, was really an attempt to help GM and Ford and the auto unions and hurt Tesla and Toyota and the other companies that build electric cars in non-unionized shops. In so south. I meant In the South, right. Um, so I mentioned this because it's actually kind of sadly typical that that the, not all jobs are created equal. And and when Biden talks about jobs, he's got a model of, you know, a, the, a, a world of the 1950s um, when everybody worked for a union, and he thinks it's his job to bring that back, not necessarily to really get the economy coming for everyone. It's the same reason that they don't make any efforts to make it easier to launch or operate small businesses. They don't really understand that world, they don't really respect it. So when they think about how do we help the economy, the idea of streamlining regulations or making it easier to start businesses or simplifying the tax code, none of that appeals to them. They they think their job is to designate specific sectors of the economy and do favors to them and then claim credit for the benefit of those very specific favors. You guys were talking about this on the podcast yesterday, I think, this tendency to, to make a problem worse and then offer a solution, and then say you've solved the problem.
0: I'm more struck by, by Noah, I mean, Noah makes a very good point that they have a good story to tell. Why aren't they telling it? We keep hearing Biden saying he's not being defended, he's mad, people aren't defending him enough. There is something very striking about uh, the fact that they're not going around saying we are the jobs administration, jobs, 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 look at all these jobs, there's so many jobs, and you, you know, for the first time, in maybe more than twenty years, workers have the upper hand over employers. They can they 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 can, uh, you know, they can trade up uh, to improve their salaries. They 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 have bargaining power uh, when for almost twenty years, really, workers didn't have bargaining power. So they're not saying it. And I think Jim, you're you're saying that you know there's an ideological reason for it, but I do think it's like they're punch drunk or they're, you know, that they've just, they're so battered by so much bad news all the time. And by managing the guy at the top and his, at best eccentric habits of public communication, um, that they, they can't sit down and come up with a, line of discussion to say hey you know think better you know you have reason not to dwell on the negative there's all this positive
3: well there, but then
0: there,
3: i mean there is an element of ideological capture in this white house which reminds me of the topic that we did want to get to in the second segment which is uh student loan debt ah really right okay
0: Well, so the ideological capture, though, doesn't mean you can't say we create a lot of jobs. Like, theoretically, Bernie Sanders wants to create a lot of jobs, too. Like, you know, it's not like it's not like the progressive position is there shouldn't be jobs. The idea is that workers should be in the driver's seat and they could sort of
2: hang on one second, John. Are you sure it's not? I mean, Bernie Sanders is an old school pro worker socialist Yeah, that's a very different ideology from the intersectional woke progressive of today, who's suspicious of the whole idea that we should even have to work. Why go why go cave to the man? Uh, You know, the government should be great
0: resignation. (laughs) Yeah,
2: the government's job should be taking money from people who don't deserve it and giving it to people who do deserve it. Work doesn't play a big part in that ideology. Okay, but it does for Biden. I mean, Biden, as you said, Biden is a
0: you know, 50s union guy. Sanders is an old-time socialist. You take your good news where you can get it. If you've got you know, gas at seven plus a gallon in California, you may want to say, yeah, but you, know, you can make $3 an hour more than you did six months ago. Like, you know, you know there, there, there are many different stories here. I don't know. I just think that gas price thing Somebody said it. Like, talk about bad news for any politician. Gas station signage. I mean, you know, you drive anywhere in the country, you go for more than five miles, you pass by three gas stations, and it says five eleven nine. You know, four seventy nine nine, or in California, six eighty nine nine. You know, it's like you can't get away from the dim memory that two years ago it was a 219 or in some cases 189 or 179 like you know that's not maybe there's just no way to emerge from that you know it's like this constant hammering over your head that your purchasing power is being degraded okay let's talk quickly about this the student loan um uh biden uh yesterday i said that they were doing something clever because they were focused they were going to focus the student loan relief or at least that was the Mm -hmm. announcement on this one for-profit chain that went bust and really left uh you know many 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 people hanging owing the money and owing owing their lenders money when they actually got absolutely nothing out of it but um uh, Charlie uh, Cook at National Review uncovered uh, this uh, quote uh, I, I, that I hadn't. Uh, I hadn't listened to Charlie Sykes's podcast of the Bulwark, uh, where he talked to James Homan of the Washington Post, um, asking uh, Charlie Sykes asking why why are they uh, why are they pushing student loan forgiveness in a way that would lead you know a person who's never gone to college to basically be subsidizing the loans of people who did go to college. Um, uh, that's crazy. Why are they doing that? Talk about like reinforcing a Trump narrative about how the white working class is paying for the sins of others, you know? Um, and Holman says the following, uh, I've asked, I've repeatedly asked people, and I've asked a lot of people in the White House, and essentially the answer is that this is the fault of Stacey Abrams and Raphael Warnock, Stacey Abrams being the Democratic gubernatorial candidate in Georgia and Raphael Warnock being the uh, Senate candidate in Georgia who is running for re-election, having won the special election in 2020, has to run again this year against uh, Herschel Walker, the Republican candidate. And Homan says, Stacey Abrams has been browbeating the White House on this and says that this is the only way she could win. This is going to be a base turnout election. This isn't about persuading people in the middle. It's about getting the base to turn out. And the base isn't going to turn out if they don't do this. And that they have all sorts of stats about how a lot of graduates from historically black colleges and universities have all this debt. And so there are a lot of people very close to the president who privately understand that this is a complete disaster for them. But the president is being pulled really hard by these woke leftists who believe it's all about the base they just don't get it because they haven't spent time in apple valley minnesota noah i mean charlie's response
3: to that was huh or what uh at which which you can only say yeah that's exactly the correct response it's he goes on to say in this piece and we should thank charlie for Producing the podcast today, he's done a lot of work for us. (laughs) Um, But they said a lot of people close home and said a lot of people close to this president who privately under there are a lot of people close to this president who privately understand that this is a complete disaster for them. So pull out of it. Who's in charge here? Stacey Abrams is not in charge. How many divisions does she command? She's not going to win her race. She didn't win the last one in a good year. She's running in a bad one. What? I suppose you're attempting to mitigate losses, but it's just you have to really think hard and convince yourself, rationalize yourself into some sort of a electoral strategy. When Occam's razor is that they're just really bad at this across the board. I was remarking on this last night. We spend just about every morning talking ourselves out of the obvious because it couldn't possibly be. But it is. They're really, really bad at this. There's no one in command. No one's hand is on the till here.
1: I don't, I don't think we talk ourselves out of it much anymore. Um, I, yeah, I, I the whole think, week we have been talking
0: ourselves out yeah. of it.
1: Yeah. <laughs> There's another thing here, which is that I think that this, this story um, is kind of says a lot about uh, the Biden administration and microcosm here. Um, they've been unable to get out from uh, under the thumb of the, of the progressives on a number of issues, right? They're, they're absolutely scared to defy them. Um, think about like the eviction moratorium stunt. Uh, there are others. Um, and it's, it's something that, yeah, it has baffled us, um, um, this whole time, but, but, but that is the story of, of this administration, I think.
0: I just don't think, I think characterizing it the way that we're, that we're characterizing it, despite James Holman saying that people are telling him they know it's a disaster, this, um, debt forgiveness for, uh, college loans, a political disaster, uh, aside from, from, from everything else. Um, I don't think that they're like under the thumb and they're afraid they don't know what to do. I think they, they want everything. That's one of the things that makes Democrats and progressives who they are. They want everything. They want government to do all kinds of things. And the idea that there are trade-offs, you should do that. If you're going to do this, you can't do that. Or if you're going to spend your money on this, that also means that probably you're not going to have enough money to spend it on that. They, they reject that. They want to do everything. And so in 2020, the party essentially committed itself to massive student debt forgiveness. And somebody's like, OK, it's 2022. Let's do massive student debt forgiveness. And nobody says, what are you, crazy? We can't do that. Inflation running at 8%. We got this. We got that. It's like, no, no, of course, we have to do that. They don't have, I, I keep saying they don't have antibodies against it, but it's not that it's like, you know, um, it's like a compulsive shopper, you know? Oh yeah. Oh, oh, wait. I'm, I just, you know, I'm in the Walmart aisle and there. Uh, Walmart's probably a bad example. The Nordstr- Nordstrom or Neiman Marcus aisle. And there's, you know, yeah, let me put that in the, I'm going to put that in the basket. Um, then somebody who's more cool eyed says, what are you doing? It's going to make, you know, you think you just walk around like Marie Antoinette, just buying everything off and then not having people resent you, but they don't have, they don't have any, they want everything.
2: Well, let's talk about that resentment because I, I think that it's hard to overestimate what a powerful force that is. You know, Nietzsche called it resentment and and he was right. It could be the most powerful force in politics. I did a piece back during the campaign for City Journal that I, it was called the Trump, uh, excuse me, the Trump effect. And this idea that people were reacting to Elizabeth Warren's debt relief proposal with real outrage. You know, that a guy confronted her in an event saying, I, you know, I save money so I could send my daughter to college so she doesn't have any loans or am I going to get paid back? And she kind of laughed it off, but that sentiment is so powerful—the the idea that someone else is breaking the rules and getting away with it and benefiting from it when you're following the rules—and I don't necessarily just mean laws, but just the social norms of, you know, saving money to send your kids to college, of, of, of not spending too much money, or you know, you also see it in if you pay your toll on the subway and you see—I saw a guy who looked like he was an executive at WeWork, you know, um, going through the gate in the subway a few years ago. And I thought, wow, you know, this this good-looking guy with, with, you know, great clothes, he figured out they're not prosecuting this anymore. Why shouldn't I just get on the subway for free? The anger that produces is really noticeable. Or like if you're in the exit lane in a highway, politely staying in your lane to exit and somebody cuts into the line at the last minute, you know, the last second. Yeah. You know how we all feel from that? Well, scale that up into a, to a political level, and it's absolutely devastated. I think they're really playing with fire with this. And, and I think that that some of them know it, but I, I, I think most of them aren't quite getting just how ordinary Americans are going to regard this.
0: I mean, they have to do it for ordinary Americans to regard it. If they do it, you know, this... It's not just resentment that says if you make up to $300,000 a year as a couple, uh, you're, you know, you're, you, or you make up that you can get student loan forgiveness. Um, and if you make $43,000 a year and never went to college, you get nothing. Uh, that's not resentment. I mean, that's not what whites being bitter about black. That's not, you know, that's not the country is passing me by. That's, that is literally what the F. I mean, how dare you? Yeah.
3: yeah. Where's the Democratic is Party's not
0: fair? What's the Democratic Party's core constituency
3: right now? It's it's college educated, white suburban people for the most part, mostly people with graduate degrees and,
0: and black people
3: and black people who so you all have of whom Stacey the vast Ingram's majority dovetail, of them, right? The vast majority of whom have paid off their student loans. They're not, a lot of these people aren't sitting on debt anymore. It's really it's recent graduates with that recent being the previous decade. Um, so you're talking about a really large constituency who played by the rules, who put $40,000, $60,000 towards a loan that they took, paid the interest, and did everything right, and will be betrayed, stabbed in the back by this constituency. Maybe that doesn't shake their faith in all the other constellation of issues that drives them to vote Democratic, but it probably mutes their enthusiasm. I mean, Um, this is a. There's a.
1: This sort of mirrors, I think, um, immigration among uh, legal uh, Hispanic immigrants who who did it did it the right way, waited in that exit lane, uh, only only to see this, you know, this sort of sense of forgiveness or uh, encouragement um, uh, for those who 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 zoom in ahead.
0: Look at. Look, I mean, let's say that in the abstract, student loan debt forgiveness is just and honor and should be done. Uh, there are a lot of things that should be done that we don't do because the social cost is too complex. But my favorite example being, we should really end the mortgage interest deduction. It's distortive. It's a, it's a, it, was a, it was a colossal mistake. It was a gigantic societal mistake colossal mistake based on a false idea that if you did this you would you would encourage home ownership we don't need to encourage home ownership home ownership numbers have been incredibly static for almost 100 years you know you could own your home or rent a lot of people want to rent so they shouldn't you know the notion of encouraging people to buy homes when it's probably better for them in the way that they live that they rent all of that it's terrible it was a terrible policy and it should end but colossal numbers of people have based their entire lives and their financial security and their financial independence and their planning for the future and their children on the amount of money that they get from their homes that is supported and ballasted by the mortgage interest deduction. And if you were to end it, unless you were to end it over 25 years, very gradually, by chipping away at it somehow, you would immiserate and cause economic crises in the homes of tens of millions of people. And we're just not gonna do that. Like we made this devil's bargain and we have to live with it and we have to mitigate it to the greatest extent possible. Just like the fact that we tied uh, uh, healthcare benefits to employers rather than to individuals, something that was done after the second world war. Terrible mistake colossal, multi-generational mistake. Fixing it could have enormously deleterious consequences. So, I mean, even if you think that this is something that is necessary because of blah, 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 you can't just do it because of all these other assumptions that people have made when they took out the loans. Like, I take out a loan. I'm responsible for paying it back. Hey, I paid it back. <laughs> look, all these people who are either irresponsible or coming on the bike now, they're fine. Like, you know, you can't do that. If you're going to start it, that's why you don't start these things to begin with. But, you know, that's why you don't start creating sort of entitlements or rights to loans or things like that, that, you know, because then you do that and and the distortion enters and then you can't and then you you've, you've added a kind of disease to the body politic that, that for which the cure would be worse. Jim Meggs, tech commentary columnist, read his column this month on uh, Elon Musk uh, and what he thinks he's doing with Twitter. Uh, he's in our He's in our pages every month. Uh, thrilling. Uh, interesting, original, uh, nothing like it anywhere else in the country, uh, in magazines and publications, uh, Jim's commenta- commentary on these matters. So thank you for joining us as ever. We'll have you back soon. And for Abe, Noah, and me, <laughs> John Podhoritz and the absent Christine, I'm John Podhortz. Keep the candle burning.